Dr. Andrew Valance Owen was the chief medical officer of Bupa for 17 years. He led work to bring patient-reported outcomes into vogue in both the private and public sectors, for which he was awarded an MBE in the 2014 Queen's Birthday Honours. He now has a number of non-executive roles in healthcare, including as chief medical officer of Medicover, and he's on the boards of startups such as Testcard, Jude, and Serena. We talk about the lessons learned from his story, what he picked up about crisis management, and the future role of private healthcare in the UK. I hope you enjoy. Would you mind telling me a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Well, it's quite a long and convoluted story. Um, I mean, I trained as a surgeon, but, but in a way it goes back even before that. I was a medical student once and I was one of those sort of rather noisy medical students and ran the medical society and the sort of person who stands up in front of the lecture theatre and says there's a drinks party on tonight and that sort of stuff. And uh, so I ran the MedSoc and we used to run big events in the medical school actually which a lot of the students from the main campus came to and um, the union was having its annual election for the president and they had been run by international socialists and communist party people for some years and someone said to me you're known on the campus Andrew why don't you stand and I thought well I was in my fourth year actually at med school you know so I mean it wasn't a good time but I thought well for a laugh so uh, you know, I, I, the trusty band, including my sister, who was a unit at the time, we, we stood for the election. And normally about six or seven hundred people voted and they all pretty well voted for these guys. And three thousand five hundred people voted and uh, the seven hundred voted for them as usual. And the rest voted for me, which was a bit of a shock, actually, because we sort of done it really for a bit of a laugh. And um, I had to go to the dean who I hadn't even spoken to and say, can I have a year out to be president of the union? You know, and the point about it was that I wasn't at all political or interested in that world. You know, my campaign was about better, cheaper beer in the union and all the rest of it. And because of that, I became much more interested in, you know, not, not party politics, but in the political world, in, in education. And I, I actually stood for the um, presidency of the National Union of Students that year on the back of that. I got quite a profile. And uh, against Charles Clark, who later on became a minister, minister in the Blair government. But uh, I didn't win, obviously. But it's a background which changed my thinking from just being a medical to having a much broader view of things. And then when I became a junior doctor, naturally, I got very involved in the BMA Junior Doctors Committee. You know, it's a sort of natural thing when you have those interests. And uh, I became the lead negotiator for the country's junior doctors. And we were campaigning actively for reduced hours of work at that time. I mean, you must have heard those good old days from people, you know, 104 hours a week, one in two rotors and all the rest of it. And so I got quite a lot of, uh, and it's sort of campaigning, really, campaigning, media campaigning, and, uh, you know, a lot of experience I got with, with that sort of thing. So I sort of came into, um, you know, the end of my medical, my, my training, um, really a sort of quite a different character to where I'd started. And in, in fact, I became very interested in management and policy and moved out of um, my surgery, which I did enjoy, but I just got rather interested in the wider fields of things and joined the staff of the BMA. That was an interesting time because uh, I'd been a, a BMA politician. And uh, so at the same time as leaving clinical medicine, although I kept my hand in, surgically for a couple of years um i was also moving from being an elected 
you know, junior doctor politician to being like a the BMA civil servant, if you like. So that was a very interesting change. And um, you know, I ran the the uh, Northern Five offices of the BMA for a few years, and then became the Scottish secretary of the uh, British Medical Surgeons. I ran the BMA in Scotland, which then started bringing me experience with ministers and politicians in Scotland and uh, a whole new area of, of policy and many arguments with the um, Mrs Thatcher's uh, ministers at the time and uh, you know we had quite a lot of fun up there as well winding them up so so those were very interesting years but uh, partly because of being at the BMA I learned much more about um, consultants, GPs, uh, you know, I was working with them, supporting them, got a whole range of what the profession was about. As a junior doctor, you're very immersed in uh, hospitals, obviously. And, uh, you know, so I got a very broad rating experience and started building a huge network, uh, you know, as well. These are all important words these days, particularly, but in those days, it wasn't sort of quite so common to have a have a big network and to be and you, had, you didn't even realize you were building it really you were just meeting lots of people and uh you know keeping in touch with them and all those sorts of things and so um you know then i at the bma i got to a sort of plateau i was on the senior management team by the age of um just under 40 and uh you, you know, there was nowhere to go, really. The, the BMA secretary, the chief executive of the BMA, you know, wasn't a position that they, they weren't going to in, in, put a 40-year-old into that job. Um, very conservative organisation. So um, I was sitting, thinking, what will I do? And uh, a job offer came up from Bupa and uh, from Bupa Hospitals. They have 35 hospitals. And uh, Frankly, as a as a junior doctor, I'd not been very supportive of private medicine. You know, one had seen um, the consultants zipping off to the down the road to the private hospital. You know, leaving you to run the outpatients and things. And I, it wasn't an area I was particularly interested in. But I said to my wife on the morning of the interview, I said, "Well, they've asked me, so I'll, I'll humour them, go along uh, and and see what it's all about." And so, rather unlike the BMA at the time, these were young young men and women uh, they had a clear strategy they knew where they were going you got a distinct impression they were going to achieve it and they were you, you know i just thought this is so different uh, to what i'd been at in in the bma and uh, i found myself saying yes please and uh, so started a very different career i mean i lost some friends uh, from uh, moving into the dreaded private sector, and uh, as other other people have done when they've when they've made those moves, um, but um, it was fascinating, and so I was back into the milieu of, of medical work, um, being responsible for clinical governance and um, the quality standards and driving quality improvement across thirty-five hospitals. And to my, I mean, real surprise. Um, I uh, was appointed only a year later. I was upgraded to be um, the medical director of the whole Bupa group, the chief medical officer of the whole Bupa group, which was uh, growing rapidly at the time. So during those years, we moved. We were already, Bupa was already in Spain and in Saudi Arabia, but we moved into Australia, New Zealand, India, China. And Bupa was quite sensible, big commercial company. Uh, but use their doctor, their leading doctors as the face of the company, uh, you know, friendly, professional face to the company, um, people like me. 
and and so I got a huge amount of um, of experience, not only in the, in the medical side, but in lobbying and media and promotion. Although I normally got wheeled out when things went wrong, so I suppose I was just known as a sort of fairly safe pair of hands. We put Andrew up, you know, and he'll 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 defend us in a sort of friendly, professional sort of way, if at all possible. So I mean, I had to appear on the Watchdog program with Anne Robinson two or three times, which was pretty horrendous, uh, and things like that. But I mean. You know, so far, so so that's my main sort of career roles. Um, I've spoken an awful lot, and uh, you know, um, so I think I'll pause and have a breath now. I don't know if there's any sort of questions you want to ask on that. You mentioned that early on you were you'd been building your network kind of unconsciously, perhaps not aware that this was a thing, or particularly trying to do it. Yeah. Do you have any tips, advice, or anything on? building a, a good network or a strong network in as a, as a young professional? Well, I think one of the key things is to keep keep those people, to keep linked into them. Now, I've used the word LinkedIn there, haven't I? And uh, we didn't really have LinkedIn in those days, but, but I do support uh, that, that approach. Uh, I think LinkedIn is a really good platform um for keeping linkedin with, with colleagues but you know in those days you just had to just keep connected you be keep in touch with them make sure that you know you went around at conferences chatting to people that you you know you'd met before and and uh, attending conferences and big gatherings and um, you know i i said to one of my early uh, mentees, uh, actually, um, you know, when you go to a conference, don't just sit there. It's hard, but but try and stand up and ask a question um, and say who you are, because if it's a sensible question, people will come up afterwards and because they have common ground with you. And, um, you, you know, that is a way to make a name for yourself. I mean, if you ask stupid questions then you probably won't do that but if, if you have a you know have a have a good question to ask if you're going to a conference and um and don't be afraid of standing up um because a lot of people do that so that was just one thing i used to say stand up make yourself known to people don't be afraid of that and um and keep up with people take their take their email addresses and follow up afterwards and say hi you know i really enjoyed chatting to you and, and things like that and sort of build up a a mini database of, of people that you you think you know might be useful in terms of what you're doing at the time um, you can't do, be too broad but if what you're doing at the time develops you know you've got a base uh, of people you can um, you, you can contact who who also contact you which is the other good thing of course you know so i still get now and the reason i'm doing sort of what i'm doing more these days is because people ring me up and say do you want this job or that job or do you know somebody who could do it and um you know that that's that's very very good for you know all sorts of reasons you mentioned that at bupa you were sometimes a friendly professional face who was brought in for kind of crisis management or sorting things out and you ended up on tv sometimes as well did you pick up any learnings on how to deal with um, a crisis or how to diffuse a situation and, and it must have been very high pressure yeah it was and um i'll i'll, I'll tell you uh, um about an event which wasn't a, a good one for bupa but i i learned a huge amount from it although i had already learned a lot of, about this sort of thing i mean we didn't have many mistakes but when you make a mistake in healthcare and it's in the public domain 
it's a big mistake. You know, impact can be very high, reputation and things like that. And um, I was in, in my office in Bupa one Tuesday morning, I remember it vividly, and I got a phone call from one of our hospitals saying um, that they had been doing for the last three Saturdays some NHS waiting list sessions. So every Saturday morning, a surgeon would come from the local NHS hospital and do cataracts, maybe 10 cataracts in a morning. And we were sort of, um, this was the third week and it was a Tuesday after the third Saturday. And the guy rang me from the hospital saying, we have a problem. <laughs> Yes, um, as, as in Apollo 13. And um, uh, the patients who had had the first cataracts done in the first, on the first Saturday were starting to get quite serious symptoms in their eyes. And, um, you know, that meant that the next two weeks worth were also going to get the same problem. And um, it transpired that the solution that the uh, methyl cellulose solution that the surgeon usually used in the NHS was a different one to the one that we used in the private hospital. Uh, the bottles look very similar. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he used uh, methyl cellulose for injection. We used methyl cellulose eye drops for the same purpose. And um, immediately you begin to see, uh, you know, the sort of problem we call it the Swiss cheese model. Normally, there are lots of controls which stop things happening. But you can already see a consultant who wasn't used to working in the hospital, a bottle looking the same. The nurses presented him with the fluid, with the bottle and the injection drawn up. And because they thought this is unusual, but he said, it looked the same. He said, yeah, that's the one, that's the one, give it to me. And in went the injections. And the uh, methyl cellulose solution for for um, for drops had a preservative in it, uh, which the injection one didn't, and that was causing a lasting reaction. And um, so we found out very quickly what had what had happened uh, that the bottles had been wrong. And um, I wrote that morning to the manufacturers to say you've got to change these bottles because uh, this mistake has occurred, and we have nearly thirty patients who are now going to be affected. By this, um, we uh, I also wrote around all our hospitals immediately, saying, "Watch out! This could happen. Uh, you know, be careful." And and uh, I said to our corporate communications director, who was a very forceful guy, actually, "We're going to have to go public today on this because the patients are going to start paying the press if we don't. And if we don't tell the press and and own up to this and say what we've already done to make sure it doesn't happen again." we are we're going to be on the back foot forever and he was not particularly happy at the thought as you know he was a promote booper person but um but i just know from experience once patients get a bit between their teeth and think there's a cover-up going on or something like that the, the the stories go on endlessly and um so uh, Chief Executive signed it off. I did the press conference. Of course, they said, oh, you can do it, Andrew. Uh, and we had about five camera crews and radio. I mean, it was uh, a big, a big do. And, um, and the, the, my, our communications guide said, well, we'll have to sack the nurses, won't we? And I said, no, we won't have to sack the nurses. You know, they did their part. They played their part in trying to tell the surgeon it was a multiple issues thing you know it's not one person and i am not going to um uh, going to be announcing anything like that
And uh, actually, the press conference, because we were up front, I was asked about the nurses, and I said exactly that. And um, we got about 24 hours of bad, bad press, uh, you know, not surprisingly. Um, but I think the fact that we had found out what it was, it wasn't going to happen again. We told manufacturers and done all the right things very quickly meant that it didn't go on. And I don't think one of those patients sued us, not one of them, um, which to me was amazing, you know, because some of them, no one had to have reoperations, but they had a really bad time for a while until it all settled down, you know, medical stories and things like that. So the big learnings from that, A, a um, don't be afraid to apologise and be open about what has happened. The more you try and cover up, the worse, the worse things can get. And we've seen that in politics and we've seen it you know, everywhere. And, um, and don't, you know, don't sack people or discipline people who are a part of, a, of a something which wasn't, was beyond their control, you know, at the end of the day. So, sorry, a long answer to your question, but I think there's a lot of learning from that sort of experience that I gained. And so I've argued very powerfully ever since, you know, that, you know, we have to be open, open, open reporting, open cultures to report and, and learn are fundamental to, to quality and healthcare. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on maybe the future role of private healthcare within the UK. Well, the role has always been, and let's be clear about this, has been mainly about cold elective surgery. That is what private hospitals are, are good at. Some of them have high power ITUs. We'll come to London in a minute. But outside London, most of the hospitals are quite small, maybe 100, 120 beds, doing cold elective surgery routinely, and they're very good at it hip replacements, knee replacements, you know, the, the common procedures, cataracts, hysterectomies are, um, you know, I've always argued, uh, you know, they are a very good place and just as good as the, the NHS. What those hospitals um, would not be good at and, um, and don't select those sorts of patients to do are ones with multiple morbidities and who are likely to need intensive care. That's not their area of expertise. They get accused of cherry picking, but that's not what they do. What they do is cold elective surgery, which, which doesn't routinely require very complicated ITU support. They have some. In London, it's, it's different. Uh, there, there are some very big private hospitals in London where they do have big, the full range of um, medical and surgical treatment with good ITU support. And they, of course, are doing much more complicated uh, surgery and, uh, and things there. And I, I think, and the NHS, I mean, during the worst of the COVID crisis, um, of course, pretty well all the private hospitals in the country stopped doing private work and stepped up to the plate uh, to help out the NHS at that time. But obviously, in order to keep themselves going, they have to go back to some sort of private work. But they are doing, private hospitals generally are doing quite a lot of cold elective work now for the NHS on, on contract, because they have, where they have capacity. Uh, it, sometimes the NHS doesn't want to use them because of the old fashioned approach, uh, we're not going to go there. But I think forward thinking NHS chief executives, um, you know, can see that they can help release some of the pressure in their hospitals by using local private hospitals and um, I'm, I'm sure that will that will continue but it's a small sector it's a small sector I mean only 10% of healthcare in the UK is 
provided through the, the private sector. So it, it's not going to completely change the, uh, the situation for the current NHS problems, which have 6 million, you know, 6 million patients uh, waiting on waiting lists because of COVID. Um, they can help out whether our particular bottlenecks and local crises, but but I think it's uh, a limited support that they can give. But they provide a service to people who, particularly big companies, who want their staff or their executives not to be off sick, waiting for six months to have a procedure, but to be able to get them back to work quickly. For them, it's about productive workforce and um, being able to get them back to work if they do get a hernia or, or, or some routine problem. And so there's, there's quite a lot of support. Two thirds of the insurance base in the UK comes from companies, small and medium sized enterprises and large, large companies. What advice would you give to either a younger version of yourself or maybe a younger medic who wanted to have maybe a career path like yourself, a kind of winding and doing lots of different exciting things? What what advice would you give that person? I think the first thing I, I always say to people I mentor is always have an open mind. Uh, you know, you may have wanted to be a neurosurgeon from the age of seven, uh, and you're absolutely on that path that very few people can become neurosurgeons and uh, you know it may not work and uh, you're in that tunnel so you never know you know when you're going around your things in medicine doing medicine psychiatry surgery you know all those things keep an open mind you're maybe coming to dermatology or something like that thinking oh. but actually you may find it fascinating and the doctors you work with may say, you, you know, you're really good at this. And uh, why don't you carry on with it? And, um, you know, so have an open mind as you go through the specialties. I mean, if, if you're absolutely determined to be one sort of type of person, then you may get there because passion is, is really important. But most people are not. And uh, I, I think so. I think I, you know, when, when it came to going to the private sector, Instead of just saying, absolutely not, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And uh, I surprised myself by going there, actually, and by how enjoyable it became. So open minds, very, very important. I think, um, well, there are two aspects to this. Some of the people I mentor are working night and day. And, and I, you know, they're working so hard uh, and I just say, you've got to have a break every so often, have some other string to your bow because it's a very pressurized job. And it's been particularly bad, of course, over the last two years. If you can possibly though have something else, um, another string to your bow, that, that is important. But, um, back, but otherwise it's back to networking, building up your contacts, um, you know, if, if someone you work with or a, a consultant you work with, uh, you really think is great, it's no harm in asking them if they might be a mentor to you while you're in that particular job. It's more difficult with the shift work these days. But, um, you know, if you sort of get on well with somebody, keep up with them if you possibly can. And, uh, you know, don't be afraid of asking them for advice. You know, I, I think... Um, most consultants, um, you know, will respond positively to people who show an interest and, and don't just um, disappear, um, you know, if they thought that they were sort of fairly good at what they do. So, uh, 
don't be afraid to put your head above the parapet. And I suppose it's the same in conferences. You know, you uh, have the confidence to feel you can stand up and ask a question. Um, you know, someone will say, oh, he's a clever dick or, or she's a clever dick. But, but actually, it's, it's quite important, I think, to, uh, to, 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 to get people to know you and to, uh, to build up your, your network if you can. Those people will be potentially very helpful to you in, in your future. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.